Sorry, mate. Gotta go. This Swerfield podcast about Oak Telly, it couldn't be easier to do. Go to this internet address and they send you information on how to listen. If you see Peggy, tell her, won't you? Oh, I'm glad you're here. This'll interest you. This new series of that Drunken Vintage TV podcast, it's starting now. If you see Peggy, tell her. What's the matter with you? You know this podcast with all the drinking and the swearing? It's really easy to get. Go onto their worldwide website. If you see Peggy, tell her. It couldn't be easier to join in with the boozing and profanity and getting actors' names and air dates wrong. For more information and to preserve a prospectus, go to PeggyManPod.com anytime. This week on the Peggy Podcast. Awful. Awful. Awful version <clears throat> of the theme tune. On the titles themselves, cracking visuals. Mind, the meteors look like dump. Right, <laughs> right. But not as promising as the next shot, where we see the <gasps> glorious woman herself. Yep. Oh, yes. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, uh, that, that sounds interesting, Ray. When, when do you think you'll be able to get me a manuscript? Oh, that was it. I just read it out. <laughs> Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to talk more about the 1980s television. Yes, hello you. Thanks for cruising by for our casual cultural critique of vintage television, where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads lead to the mountain. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and links for the episodes we're discussing today is in the show notes. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or maybe suggest programmes that you'd like us to cover. And before we begin a shambolic and poorly rehearsed act for the appeasement of an already impatient audience, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? Well, you know, I feel a bit sprightly today, and Uh? I don't know why, summery and springy. Right. So, uh, yes, um, strawberry and black pepper gin. Okay. Was that like gin with something in it, or is that the gin? That is the gin. Okay. Uh, Whitley, it's a Whitley and Neal. And, um, oh, so it's posh then. Okay. It's like summer in your mouth. It's marvellous. <laughs> I've just revealed my own social standing by calling that posh. There'll be people listening to this, because that's not posh. That's, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just flavour. It's um, No, it's it's rather pleasant. It really is. Fantastic. Um, right. So, yeah, what about your good self? Uh, this week, I am on the... Original Stormtrooper, Situation Normal, India Pale Ill. Very good. So, Very good. So, yeah. Now, yeah. That, no, that is nice. That is nice. I looked in the camera guide. Do you know what that goes well with? What? A slice of apple. Oh, does it? Yeah. Yeah. If you if you happen to have an apple to hand, or, and you could cut it into slices, if you nibble away while you're drinking that, apparently, perfect. Complimented beautifully. I'm drinking it straight out of the can. If I had a glass... I could sort of like wedge it over the top, like you do with tequila and lime. But as I'm drinking it out of the it, can, even though the sharp edge would be ideal for an apple, I think it would impede the drinking. So I think I'm okay for apple for now. That is a very, very scientific approach to your consumption. And, which leads me on to something else, actually. I've got to say, mine, uh, I'm liking the lab coat this week. You remind me of the doctor. 
Which doctor? No, not him. The other one. Who? That's right. What? No, not what. Who? Who? Yes, the doctor. What doctor? Who? Correct. Doctor Who was a little-known science fiction television series that was tucked away in BBC One's tea time slot between 1987 and 1989. It starred Sylvester McCoy as an alien who'd stolen an old-fashioned police car with no wheels and he used it to travel through time, righting wrongs and kicking the fuck out of other aliens. We've watched a four-episode arc from the middle of the series called The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, written by Stephen Wyatt, directed by Alan Waring. This originally aired in weekly instalments beginning on Wednesday the 14th of December 1988 at 7.35 in the evening. When the Doctor and his secretary decide to break the monotony of their minimalist waiting room and visit a circus, a chance encounter with a roadside vendor in a magnificent hat sets them up for a right old ruckus. Pretty soon, they're plotting to kill an elderly explorer. See, this theme tune gets on me nerves. <laughs> it's it's whiny. This is the greatest theme tune ever written for television. And this version is whiny, 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 whiny. I don't think this is what our audience, or both of them, want to hear. Go on. Awful. Awful. Awful version mm. of the theme tune. On the titles themselves, cracking visuals. Mind, the meteors look like dump. Right, but right. apart from that, and the TARDIS is the wrong proportion, but apart from that, and it goes a little bit too slow, but apart from that, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> So we're in. Now, you know, many out there know that I am a little bit of an aficionado when it comes down to The Good Doctor. Yeah, yeah. I've watched this since I was four years old. And and I'm not 12. So I've watched this for a long, long time. Can I take it that you watched this arc back in the day? Mm-hmm. Oh, we have, by the way, dear listener, we have watched all four episodes of the arc. Normally we do one episode, but... You know, under the circumstances, we watched all four. It's one story. That's it. Did you, um, yeah, did you watch this one back in the day then? I most certainly did. Because I don't remember seeing this. No, yeah. I wasn't, I was always like a casual, a very casual fan of Doctor Who. I wasn't off it by this point, but I think certainly if the first episode of a storyline didn't interest us, then I'd just not bother with the rest of them. And by 1988, I was into Iron Maiden and Warhammer. So I suspect that I thought that. I was a bit too cool for this. Uh, I was of that same thinking at the time. I had drifted away from Who. Right. And I dipped in and out of this series. I didn't watch them as broadcast. I would record them upon the VCR and watch them later. Okay. Um, They weren't appointment viewing for me anymore. Um, In in this case, like, what, 33 years later? What As it is now, you mean? Yes, (laughs) yes, it's no longer. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, It's it's, all just a little bit of history repeating. With that, the actual story itself. Yes. We start off, there's a nice shot, actually, which I think is all right. We, we know that Doctor Who is is up there amongst uh, those shows that like to self-reference. And there's a lovely shot of Ace in Tom's scarf at the beginning. Right. Uh, when Ace and the Doctor are in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. She's wearing Tom's scarf and she's wearing Mel's top. So does uh, that Mel mean... was the previous companion. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean people just leave all their old clothes just like lying around the TARDIS, including the Doctor. 
the Doctor does. The TARDIS is filled with these old clothes. Right. Not usually companions. Now and again, there'll be bits and pieces, but they do leave impromptu usually. So, yeah, the Doctor and Ace land on this, like, planet and that. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, this this planet where they employ artists to do mat shots, which are not bad, actually, for 1988. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. bad. Uh, I didn't mind that at all. So, it's a, anyway, of course, it's a, it's it's Warmwell Quarry in... Uh, in Dorset is where we are. We cut to a scene in the big top tent of this creepy circus. Oh, don't the we? greatest show in the galaxy. Don't yes. we? Don't we? Rico Ross, he comes out just doing the the most excruciating rap I have ever heard. Thank you. Um, it reminds me of that Hugh Jackman film, which I've successfully avoided watching so far. You have to bear in mind, Rico Ross, the actor that plays the ringmaster, he was in Aliens two years earlier. James Cameron's Aliens, that Aliens. And then he did The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Imagine that. Imagine that on your CV. Yep. Well, you don't put it on your CV. <laughs> such that, do you? Um, <laughs> but it's been on telly. You can't deny it, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's right. That's right. Uh, but then again, um, there was a certain director out there who directed many an episode of Blake 7 and never put them on his CV. Um, Fair play. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so here we are. I've got to say as well, before I start saying nice things, Ace is absolutely atrocious in this, isn't she? See, I'm a mixed bag with her. Was she always like this? I don't really have that many kind of memories of this era. Like I said, I sort of dip in and out of it, but it wasn't my thing thing by then. I've done the numbers, and Sophie Aldred was around 26 when this was made. Mm -hmm. But she plays her role like a 12-year-old who hasn't had any acting lessons. She's better than that, surely. Well, yes, and she is now. I right. Mean, okay. Um, th- thanks to the uh, thanks to Big Finish, you know, we get a lot of Seventh Doctor adventures with Ace, and everything's much better. Okay. Okay. Um, c- character progression, all the rest of it, wonderful. They've got on record many a time at conventions and stuff to say that you know there just wasn't time, and there was very little in the way of retakes, etc. So they just couldn't get things right. Right. Okay. But, yeah. Well, hello, Sophie, if you're listening. Yeah, she is. You know she's listening, but yeah, that's fine. Of course, of course. Her, her demeanour um, as as Ace, or rather the character's demeanour, didn't like it. Yeah, just some petulant teenager. Got me nerves. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're preying on um, everybody's coolrophobia here. What could we do to frighten the people? Yeah, let's put clowns in it. I don't think they're especially frightening clowns, though. They're they're not frightening, they're not but, like, but they're sinister. But you know when you see like a, a clown in a horror film and it's too much? And you're like, yeah, that's yeah, not... Yeah, yeah. I see what you've done there, but that's not what's frightening about clowns. You need that kind of underlying sinister level rather than, oh, yeah, it's got blood all over its face. And then Well, like, they tried that by making them drive a hearse. But, yeah, even so, I'm like, I don't think they're... They're kind of, like, weird. But all they've, all they've done right is they've got Tricky Dicky and they put him in clown makeup and they made him do a French accent. So that at first people yeah. think the budget could stretch to uh, Vincent Castle. There's a picture in the show notes, have a look by the way. They're basically the same actor, except one was in Westworld and Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan and the other one got as high up as EastEnders. Um, yeah, they're yeah. kind of like a little bit weird, but not especially scary. Bearing in mind it's Doctor Who and they can make anything scary. Well, they should be, but, you know, by this time they're being hammered by the Mary Whitehouse Brigade. They're still right. reading from the effects of that from the 70s, oh, okay. which did them a favour in one respect, but in another made everyone a little bit 
well, overly cautious. Right. Uh, so, and especially, well, it's Colin Baker's era, um, they got hammered for that. That's why it was put on hiatus. One of the reasons, supposedly. Too violent, too scary. Uh, so they were really just treading very carefully, I think. Mm, um, okay. But me personally, I kind of like the imagery of the clown in a hearse in a dystopian wilderness. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind that. That was all right. I thought this is this is promising, but not as promising as the next shot where we see the <gasps> glorious woman herself. Yep. Oh, yes. Here we go. Here we go. The outfit is incredible. Isn't it? That hat. <laughs> I need that hat. I need the penny. I'm the doctor. This is my friend Ace. What sort of costume do you call that? I don't understand. Hers is no better. We don't want your type around here. Ah, and um, what type might that be? Weirdos. You can tell them at a glance, you know. Yeah, I think what I like about Peggy in this, she's basically just playing Flora Petty from You're Only Young Twice, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she, exa- she is exactly that character. Yeah. She's on this remote market stall on a road out to Western Supermare selling hollowed-out pineapples full of rice pudding and cold sick. She is yep. fucking magnificent in this. Yeah, and yeah, you're yeah, right, they've, they've just dressed her in whatever was left in the bottom of the box. She gives not one fig. <laughs> Peggy's yeah. script in this makes absolutely zero sense, and she just fucking belts it out anyway. She is the only cast member bringing any level of theatrical truth to their role in this programme. <laughs> it's true enough, because she absolutely does look... Uh, sick of it all um, yes. when when she's there. She's done all of her scenes in one morning. She's fucking loving it. If anyone steps out of line on second acts, she will fucking knack them. <laughs> yeah, she really will. I don't think she'd look out of place in the Mad Max trilogy. I really don't. I've got yeah, I've got another note when we uh, about that those very two words as we go on. Peggy doesn't even get a character name. She's just called Stalls Lady. That's outrageous. She is. That's it is outrageous, but that's all she needs because her, her acting just takes it takes everything over. And then some guy pulls up on a bike and he's doing a remarkable impression of Arthur from On the Buses. He is, isn't he? So it wasn't just me then, was it? You noticed that? Oh bless! Ridiculous. And then we run into the evil brother of Marvin, the paranoid android. Yes. And uh, and I guess in a in a way, this was a clever idea. Uh, here comes Adrian Ball on a BMX. Yes, Jansen Marco uh, rises from over the horizon, playing this geeky character in a bow tie and uh, what, what do you call them? Um, tank top. Uh-huh. And um, he his character was written as a parody of obsessive Doctor Who fans. Oh, uh, okay. That's why he's in there. Getcha, getcha. I do think if you're going to start writing smart-ass, self-aware parodies, this probably isn't the episode to drop it into. Mm. Yeah. Why does some? Um, why does Ace wait for about mm. 20 minutes before she smacks that robot in the head with a shovel? I know. That could have been, you know, <laughs> could have been sorted out far yeah. sooner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's in keeping with the, the entire trend uh, of this particular episode of, uh, of Doctor Who. Um stretched out way too far and rammed full of filler. This is absolute filler, isn't it? The episode basically takes 20 minutes to establish a desolate planet with a circus on it. I mean, it's meant to feel this cheap, yeah? <laughs> this, I definitely get the feeling that... in the 80s. I definitely get the feeling that the circus setting 
is a license for someone to go, right, 90% of the sets can be made out of sheets and sawdust. Mint. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, a little bit about that, uh, a little bit of behind the scenesies. It was found that there was asbestos in the studio in which they had erected the big top. So they had to pull it out of the building while the asbestos was removed. They couldn't pause filming, so they thought, crack on. So they erected the big top tent in the BBC car park and um, carried on filming. I love that the first episode doesn't even get to a cliffhanger. It just ends because they've hit 22 minutes somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shall we go in? And, that, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they have the audacity to open the second episode with a replay of that as if we'd been sort of sitting there thinking, oh, they, does that mean they're going to go in? I, I wonder. I've been talking about this for a week. Oh, yeah, they did go in. Right, okay, yeah. Bless yeah. them. I'm pleased they did go in, because if they hadn't gone in, there wouldn't be really much of a part two. So, yeah, I'm pleased they did go in. Yeah, are you pleased to go in? Yeah. <laughs> on and on, on and on, episode two goes. It drags on. Nothing happening at all, except a big cage, some juggling, mm-hmm. and more creepiness from the clown. Total filler. I, I do know that th- this story is four episodes. It was originally written as three, but it was the exec producer who said we needed to be four. So, you know, that this is, is what's... Basically, a thirty-minute storyline dragged out. Yeah, you know? yeah, it is. Well, forty-five minutes. I would, I'd give it that. Um, they could easy in today's um, duration of episodes. They, they could, they could do that easily. Right. Um, episode three, uh, we've got a droid and a frog. Um, what, what else? What else? <laughs> we've, um, what, we haven't really know? touched on Mags so far. She's the Mags is very much the punk rock goth, isn't she? Jessica Martin. She's the punk rock goth, then she'll do what she wants, and uh, she ain't uh, taking no shit. I've uh, I've got a note here that saying it feels like you said very much like an homage to Mad Mad Max and Blade Runner. Mm. It's been made by people who have heard of Mad Max and Blade Runner, but who have seen neither. Right. I mean, with the um, with the set of the of the big top, you know, it's it's corridors of cloth. Yes. Um, with lighting. <laughs> uh-huh. But I'm enjoying some of, some of the simplistic effectiveness. There is something going on there that I, I don't mind so much. For all my moaning, there is definitely the seed of something great in here. I just... Uh-huh. It's not like it hasn't got time to grow into anything good. It has. Um, I just, yeah, I don't think they've really done it. You've got the, um, the creepy family who make up the audience. And again... It just feels kind of boring, like they're not even trying. They've gone, oh, put put three sort of like 1950s people in the audience. That'll be enough. That'll be sinister. Yeah. Okay. But, and then you get yeah. to the, we get to the end of part three, and Mags is a werewolf. Why? Because Ace has spent the whole episode locked in a store cupboard, so we've got enough left in the budget for the teeth. Okay, mate. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I will say, I can't remember his name. Who's the person who's on the run? The entire time with like the um, braided military top on. Oh, we meet him in the first episode and he's on the run. He's all throughout the episode. I've forgotten the character's name. Isn't that terrible? Never mind. All I wanted to say was he's wearing some beautiful, beautiful maroon flared slacks. <laughs> they are absolutely beautiful and perfect for a dystopian wilderness. Did the is is there a peg in the ground early on? Where we find out where this sits in the timeline in relation to Earth time. I know we're not on Earth time. But is this meant to be a futuristic story or a past story? Yeah, I'm sure it's um, I'm sure it's 23rd century. I'm sure that was mentioned. In that case, yeah, maroon, maroon flared slacks. That's what we'll all be wearing. I'm fine with that. Yeah, when when the Doctor rocks up in the in the Ragnarok's arena at the end, it looks like an episode of Nightmare. 
Yeah, it does. And it's again, it's not bad. I think it's a decent culmination. It's an explanation as to why everything's been happening to a certain degree. Um, but again, it's like, let's, we'll, we'll build a set and we'll have three characters sitting there who can't move. They're meant to look like they can't move because they're meant to look like they're made out of stone. So they won't move. And then we'll use this for the last, what, 22 minutes? That'll be, yes, yes. While Sylvester yeah. McCoy does some magic tricks. Now, Bear in mind this is television, and and there is editing. Yes. And in the uh, in the end credits, Roland, it says magic uh, consultant Jeffrey Durham. It was it was indeed. Now I mean that's that's fair enough, but for what? Because they needed realism yeah. in this. Why? Right. Where the editing and the effects means he can literally have a pedal bin coming out of his ass. No, no, no. Jeffrey Durham said they go. No, no, you can't do that. No, no, no. The, the biggest you can <laughs> have is an office waste paper basket coming out of his ass. Okay, Jeffrey. Yeah. So, all good. Oh, and a, a final note. Uh, the big black robot is bullshit. Um, but that, for me, was... Uh, <laughs> was the, that, is that his character name? The, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, how many, um, how many pegs will you be putting on the line for this? I mean, you know, Doctor Who's me life. Uh, but I can look at everything objectively because I've seen all the episodes that many times. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, this is one of those that I really do tend to leave on the shelf. I don't go back to this one very often. Five. Yeah, fair enough. Um, in a turn up for the books, in terms of our scores relative to each other, this is, I think, not iconic Vintage Who. But it no. also seems to feel comfortably typical of its era. It's undemanding but I think it's kind of acceptable for anyone who's already on board. And crucially, bonus points for Dame Peggy. I'm giving this six out of nine. Good. But the good news is there's no steps up the mountain because we're already there. We are indeed. I thought we were going to have to traverse all the way across a desert dystopian wasteland. We're already there. We're already there. Yes. Peggy's there on her market stall. She's got the drinks ready. Yeah. And she's missed a trick because in those hollowed out pineapples, you uh-huh. know what she should have had? What's that? Apples. I'm not sure that would work. I'm not sure you have those in uh, in space. Well, if you can get a penny. Healthier eating with lean cuisine, low-fat dishes like zucchini lasagna, a new Kashmiri chicken curry. Less fat, more taste. Have the fat cooking something up with me. Findus Lean Cuisine. Well, I started racing greyhounds now, and this one's no beginner. He hasn't lost a single race, a dead cert money spinner. That's why I call a hairy hound. Now, I name my dog Gonzalez, because he goes at such great speeds. The bookie's cursed, because he's always first, and I'm laughing all the way to the lead. He always leads me to the leads. See, I've got an account called Liquid Gold. That's where my cash is kept. If you want top rates of interest, the leads is your best bet. And you can get your paws on it instantly. Then one day he was lured away by a pound of pork and beef. My canine gold mine led astray by some crafty little thief. Not very sporting, is it? Well, I didn't want to lose that dog because he's my cash supply. Down at the track, he soon came back when Fifi caught his eye. 
Liquid Gold now pays ten and three quarter percent for bigger savers, so laugh all the way to the leads. They were absolutely beautiful. They really were. And I think you should buy the things. Buy those things. Absolutely. Hashtag things. There it is. There it is again. That's your facsimile. Hang on. Hang on a little bit. I'll get it. I want it. You need to bring it closer. Can we get a hostess trolley? No, I've got it. <clears throat> no, I told you the, um, <clears throat> the flex doesn't reach. Is it? Mm -hmm. Oh, to both of us this week. Dear hosts, what is with all this mm -hmm. talk of apples every week? With their biblical origins and uneven spheroid shape, apples are the most staid and joyless of fruits, interesting only to those with no imagination. Bananas are where it's at, grandads. A knob joke before eating and a safety hazard afterward, they truly are the soul of wit and excitement. Bring back bananas. Also, please do Banana Man on your show. That's why we're writing. Sincerely, Donald Davison and Stephanie Dark, London West 12. OK, well, thank you for that. We'll, uh, we'll file the idea. Although you ever had a repetitive, escalating joke about bananas. Insane train of thought. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know what's wrong with the whole apple thing. It's not like it's illegal. There are many felonies a man can commit in a lifetime. Creating rhythm without rhyme. Drinking lager with lime. Or the worst of the lot, punishment without crime. Ray Bradbury was the massively influential 20th century American author of sci-fi, horror and weird fiction who brought us Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles and, of course, A Sound of Thunder. As well as prose works, he also wrote a wealth of screenplays and television scripts, which brings us to his 1980s anthology series, The Ray Bradbury Theatre. We've watched Punishment Without Crime, which aired on ITV under their Twist in the Tail banner on Sunday the 28th of August 1988 at half ten at night. In a bleak futuristic society, Donald Pleasance is on trial for murdering his beautiful young wife. When he tries to convince his captors that she's not actually dead, he's told that they already know this, and what's more, that makes no difference. It's a very dramatic opening, isn't it? It is. It is. A silhouette of some beautiful flared slacks. Yep. I was invested at that point. I thought, OK, OK, this is, this is the Ray Bradbury Theatre. It is, yeah. I'm sitting down for this because it's the forget forget the Newcastle Theatre Royal, forget the London Palladium. This is the Ray Bradbury <laughs> Theatre. Sunday night at the Ray Bradbury Theatre. That's what this is. I'd be there. Who would host it? Ray Bradbury. Oh, he's got to have it all, isn't he? <laughs> well, look, he's on there. He's on the start of his own show. He's, he's walking through his corridors in this bizarre labyrinthine house that he inhabits with his office in there. Judging by this framing piece introduction which I'm, I'm going to assume ran at the start of every episode, Ray Bradbury mm. lives and works in what can only be described as an absolute fucking fire hazard. He absolutely does. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like Stephen King has got jammed in a matter transporter with Mr. Trebus. Yes, 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 yes. But, to be fair, the premise, the man thinks, hmm, I need a story. So the man sits at his desk and looks around at he a does. room, he does. teeming he's with old bric-a-brac shit, yep. what, and then gets what inspiration. What piece of rickety old shit should I write a story about today? <laughs> I'm Ray Bradbury. That, that's him. <laughs> yeah. I'm Ray Bradbury. Oh, look, there is a jam jar that I haven't touched for 14 years. It's mouled up the side and it's hanging. 
<laughs> I'll write a story about that. <laughs> it's about yeah. some killer jam. So it's a bit um, Alfred Hitchcock presents The Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits, isn't it? My misophonia went through the roof, as <laughs> right. usual, with right. the dubbed Foley footsteps. <laughs> what, you know, from the 60s onwards, mm-hmm. television's obsessed with putting these footsteps in. Yep. I, I, yes, I know they add a certain something, but get it right, because they never sound real. No, that, oh. that is Ray Bradbury's footsteps. They were, those tap shoes were worn by a murderer. That's why he's got them. Uh, well, yes, maybe so then. Right. And Donald Pleasance has got a beautiful jogging suit on. He has. I thought he was the man from Milk Tray for a minute. <laughs> you mean you basically want to see him breaking into a woman's house? Yeah, not really. But it's 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 slightly forgivable when we get further on in the story. He's got that waistcoat with the hands on, mm-hmm. which is decidedly brilliant. So what we've got here is a load of shit. <laughs> He's peaking early already. Can this is? Could you like? Is this the structure of his notes? Okay. <clears throat> what we've got here is a half-hour morality play about the ethics of killing a self-aware artificial intelligence construct. It's about the boundaries of where life and sentience begin and how they're intertwined. Now, credit where it's due. His actual original short story was published 18 years before Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. But as this TV adaptation lands six years after Blade Runner, I'm not sure how much that still counts for at that point, it also touches on whether the intent to commit a crime is as serious as the act itself, which is, again, like Philip K. Dick's Minority Report, which he wrote in 1956. It predates all of that. That's fine. The thing here is that ITV Strand, in particular, was called Twist in the Tail, and there is no twist here. Not a one. It tells you what it's going to do, and then it does it. There's not really that much metaphor to this when it explains itself at every bastard turn. It's a little bit like a sixth form philosophy essay. In mm. prep for this, I did go back and I've read the original sh- uh, short story. So I've read the print I version as that, well. I would have done that, but I've got it all on. I've got it all on. I didn't have time, but yes. Well, this is the thing. It's only 13 pages long, and it still manages to make a clearer case for the prosecution than a 25-minute right. okay. TV script. Before we even get to that, interior, yes. office, day. Ray Bradbury's there. He's on the phone to his agent, right? Good morning, yeah. Ray. What have you got for me today? Well, Don, I was just looking at an old computer, what I knacked with a golf club, and I was thinking, <laughs> what if you could get done for murdering a robot the same as you would with a person, like prison or even the electric chair? Wouldn't that be crackers? Okay, uh, that, that sounds interesting, Ray. When, when do you think you'll be able to get me a manuscript? Oh, that was it. I just read it out. That's how Ray Bradbury has adapted his own story for the screen here. <laughs> Good lord. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 said to a producer and a director who needs to realize this for the screen, what you need to do is shoehorn in as many 80s television tropes that you possibly can, from the lighting to Foley to incidental score. Oh, the to, the, the lighting technicians are doing the most of the work here. Yes. Everything's yes, just white walls. You make that red. Oh, I beg your pardon? <laughs> I'm Ray Bradbury. <laughs> it's got to go red now because there's going to be a murder. It'll go blue in a minute. <laughs> there was... Uh, 
some whistling included in amongst bits and pieces that were going on, which uh-huh. made me want to fill my ears with cement. <laughs> yes. It, what's, that, what's that doing? <laughs> what is that even doing? No, there is no, this no, um, no. sort of deliberate standoffish detachment from the direction and the acting, which is probably meant to come over as like minimalist futurism. It just feels yeah. self-indulgent in this, doesn't it? That's probably that's it arguably the same thing, but you know. So anyway, Donald Donald Pleasance is in the prison, and they're like, "You murdered your wife, you," and he goes, "Well, A, I did, and B, there she is on the telly out the window, so um, I, I didn't." And they're like. We're still going to kill you anyway, because you did murder her, in a way. We get the story of how that's done. It's to do with robots. Yeah. And then he's in the court, isn't he? He's in the court, and the court scene is rather prophetic, I thought. The inclusion of virtual a virtual jury. Yeah, yeah, they do their entire jury duty via Zoom. <laughs> that's very nice. Right. I thought the Red, the Red Bradbury is doing well here. I've invented Zoom. <laughs> And it's like, no, you've, you've used a, t- a television and a camera, Ray. I'm not sure that's quite the same. No, no, I did that. I might write a story about that. <laughs> Go on, Ray. Had- Go on. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. Ian Cuthbertson is brilliant. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that he has become the amalgamation of Frank Thornton and Nicholas Parsons. <laughs> Watch him back. Ian Watch him back. Cuthbertson is... Yep. Was and always will be Scunner Campbell. That's right, Tub. <laughs> Where we're we going, Tub. <laughs> That's how he's spoken, super grand. Uh-huh. Frank Williams is here. He and is? it's so nice to see him not playing a clergyman for Jimmy Perry and David Croft. Exactly this. He hasn't done too much to change his characterisation, but it's nice to not see at him. All. You know. Yeah. And he's still he's got that I don't know whether it's I don't know what it is. I think he's been hit in the nose at some point in his life. But whenever he pronounces an M, it always sounds like a B. Listen back to it. He always sounds like he's got a really blocked nose. So yeah, the yeah, reason is. the reason we're all here in the court today Oh yes. This case presided over by none other than Dame Peggy Mount as the judge. It's better Is it with the hammer. It's better than Stoll's lady, I suppose, but only just. Well. I can tell you that her character is not in the mm. original short story. They've done this especially for Pegs. Mint. Mint. I mean they haven't exactly they haven't exactly fitted her for that wig. They've just taken that out of the box and slapped it on her head. Well. But you know, she's doing a thing for this. She's not just playing Flora Petty. There is a little bit of sort of something else going in it. And she, it's basically her job to sit there and go. Donald Pleasance is going to prison. In fact, no, he's going to get killed. That's what she does. Yep. That's about That's it. That's what she does. I have to be honest with this. The stylization, it was just, it was just, let's capitalise on all trends set by various programmes of this ilk and oh, yeah. let's just throw them all in and see what comes, like a, in like a salad spinner, and see what comes out. No, it absolutely is. It's very much a 1980s version of what the future will look like, bearing in mind the 1980s already looked like the future. Yeah, got on my nerves, this. I was overjoyed to see the credits. I was honestly got on my nerves. A highlight of the credits, actually, was seeing who one of the producers was, and it was Larry Wilcox. Okay. Larry Wilcox from, from Chips, uh, who played the part of John Baker. That's not the Eric Estrada character. Right. Um, because when he, when he stormed off the set of Chips in a huff um, in season five, 
because of a peer dispute, I think. Um, he went into producing. I think he was well into producing for the rest of his career. Um, yeah, he was responsible for this. Mm-hmm. This Stick is precisely the level of showbiz gossip I'm here for. Yeah. Stick to chips. <laughs> yeah. So, pegs on the line time. Two. Oh! I couldn't be bothered. I couldn't be bothered. It was, it was right, one for Peggy and one for Ray Bradbury because I think that man is fantastic. Okay. Can't write for shit, but I think he's fantastic. What about you? Well, I think this is the easiest afternoon's work that Peggy's ever had. Um, she doesn't even get to raise her voice. She's no. absolutely wasted in a feature which pretty much fails to live up to every single aspect of its potential. Three out of nine from me. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Sorry, Ray. And, and how many steps is it going to take us to go from the courtroom to the death chamber? Do you know what? None. Absolutely zero. We're already there. Already there. Amazing. Once again. That's the power of Peggy. Brilliant. Right, so while I recover from the power of Peggy, Blackout's got his socials. Yes, thanks once again for being here. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyMountPod on Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook. Don't forget to go over to PeggyMountPod.com and check out the show notes for this episode. I'm thinking we should fill the studio, you know, like uh, Ray Bradbury's, like, study. Uh-huh. Fill it with fill it with all kinds of memorabilia. Is that all right, Ken? Ken will not be on for this. <laughs> He's shaking his head. He's shaking his head. Oh, well, never mind. We'll try and convince him in between now and next week's episode. Join us next week. Until then, keep mounting. The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media, which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments and television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Peggy Mount Pod.com.